Now, when the one true God gave us his word here in the scriptures, he did not give us a theology textbook. He gave us songs, history, visions, proverbs, prophecies, and letters. And what we're doing this week here at Ancon is we're drawing all that different material together to see what it says about this central event in God's plans for the world, the cross of Jesus. We're taking a systematic approach. We start with a topic and see what the Bible as a whole says about it. But tonight we're going to do something different. We're going to listen to one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. We heard a lot this morning about the foreshadowing of the cross in the Old Testament. Tonight we're just going to listen to how it happened. Mark has written his account of Jesus' life, ministry, death and resurrection as a narrative. It's meant to be read right through. And the narrative itself has a power and a force. So tonight we're going to listen to the way Mark records it for us. We're going to be hearing the final three chapters of Mark's Gospel, chapters 14 to 16, and we've printed them out for you in your book. The reason we've printed it out is so that you can follow along And I'd encourage you to be using a pen as we go, circle, underline, highlight anything that stands out for you to help you focus. Now I've divided the the narrative up into six parts and after each part I'm just going to make a few comments which hopefully will bring out some of the themes and the illusions that may have skipped you by as we've gone. Now we are jumping right in at the end of Mark's account, so it's worth me pointing out just a few things that will help you better understand what Mark is about to tell us. A big theme of Jesus' ministry and teaching in Mark's Gospel has been the Kingdom of God. Mark starts his Gospel in Mark chapter 1 with this introduction. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Son of God is a title for the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. You could see that, for example, in Psalm chapter 2. Mark states right up front that Jesus is God's chosen King, the King in God's kingdom. And when Jesus starts his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, his fundamental message is that the kingdom of God is near. That is the longed-for moment when God would finally intervene and establish his kingdom and set things right, as he'd promised to do for his people. That great longed-for moment was now near. And because God's kingdom was about to dawn, Jesus' fundamental call to people was to repent and believe the gospel. Turn back to God. Give up your sinful ways. Entrust yourself to this good news message that Jesus is the King. Now that news that the Kingdom of God is about to dawn, that's pretty popular news. According to Mark, the crowds flock to hear Jesus teach and to see him heal people. The healings were like little windows, little glimpses into what the coming Kingdom would be like. But this call to repent, give up your sinful ways, humbly turn back to God, That was not such a popular message. It never is. And it becomes clear as Jesus goes from place to place, teaching and healing, that while some respond positively in repentance and faith, many others are stubborn in heart 
and they refuse to turn and others actively oppose him. So we're about to pick up Mark's account now in chapter 14. Jesus and his close group of disciples are on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus knows there will be a showdown with the Jewish religious authorities. In fact, in just a few days, Jesus is going to be dead. So part one, the preparation. Passover. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them wherever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Uh, throughout the three years of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples that it would end with his death. It's Mark chapters 8, 9, 10, 12. Though it must be said, each time the disciples never really understood why it must end with his death. In fact, in their thinking, it made no sense at all. The Christ, the Messiah, he rules. He sits on his victorious throne. He doesn't get killed. But Jesus knew from the Old Testament foreshadowing that we looked at this morning that the vocation of God's Christ was to be rejected, to suffer and die, and then to be raised to life again. And in this first section from Mark 14, we see three parts of the preparation for Jesus' death. You've got the religious leaders who are plotting his death. Their opposition to Jesus goes way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he flouted Jewish law and he healed somebody on the Sabbath day of rest. And their opposition has intensified when Jesus reached Jerusalem and he challenged their authority and the laws and the systems they had in place. And we've also got Judas, who's one of Jesus' hand-picked 12 disciples, who decides that he's had enough of Jesus and he agrees to betray Jesus to the very religious leaders who want him dead. 
But in the account we just read, wedged between, between these two, we have this unnamed woman who anoints Jesus with incredibly expensive perfume while he's at Simon's house. Now, there's great irony here. Judas and the religious leaders, those who should have known best, are trying to kill God's king. This nameless woman anoints Jesus like the Christ, the king that he is. Judas and the religious leaders are motivated out of self-interest. Judas wants the money, the leaders want their power. The woman selflessly anoints Jesus with what was probably the most valuable thing she owned. And yet, according to Jesus, this woman's actions, they were also a preparation for his death. Jesus said there, she is anointing me ahead of time for my burial. She's performed a good service for me, he says. Getting me ready for my death is a good thing. So having now been anointed beforehand for what is to come, Jesus is ready. All the preparations for what have to come have now been laid. So part two, the meaning. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Jesus is convinced that he will be left alone as he heads to his death. He announces that one of his closest disciples, one of the twelve, will betray him. It's shocking news to them. Surely not I. Yet we already know that Judas has done a deal with the chief priests to do just that. And then Jesus states that they will all desert him. But Peter and the rest all swear unswerving loyalty. We will not deny you. But Jesus knows he will be deserted. Why? Because that's what the Old Testament said would happen. As Jesus said to them in the meal, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So in Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist says, Even my close friend who I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up the heel against me. And when they're in the Mount of Olives, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, verse 7, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knows he will be deserted because that's what the scriptures said would happen to the Christ. He will face death alone. But in the middle of these two paragraphs about desertion and betrayal, Jesus provides the key to understanding the significance of his death. He is the new Passover lamb. Now the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover meal, which marked the beginning of that festival, they're incredibly important Jewish festivals. They com commemorated the great moment of rescue and redemption from the Old Testament, where God miraculously delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And according to Exodus chapter 12, every year the Israelites were to remember this great moment of Old Testament salvation by celebrating the Passover meal together. That's the meal that Jesus eats here with his disciples. Now, the original Passover moment in Egypt was simultaneously about judgment and redemption. You can read the details in Exodus chapter 12. Because the Egyptians had rejected God's command to let the Israelites go, God was going to bring judgment on the Egyptians and their gods. What was that judgment? Well, what? From this morning, what's, what's God's just judgment on sin? It's death. And so the firstborn of every household was going to die for that sin. Sin brings death. The only way to escape God's judgment there in Egypt was via the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. God didn't want anyone to die. So he provided a way of rescue from that judgment. 
Any family, whether Israelite or Egyptian, that wanted to escape God's judgment, they had to take a male lamb, a year old, without any defects. They had to kill it, cook it, and wipe some of the blood over the doorframe of the house. And then when the angel of the Lord came through the land that night, if he saw blood on the door, then he knew that the Passover lamb had been slaughtered and he would pass over that house. But in the houses where there was no lamb's blood on the door, where there was no lamb's blood shed, the firstborn would die. Now, of course, as you can read in Exodus 12, when that night came and all the firstborn died, it was horrific. And the Egyptian pharaoh relented at that point and let the Israelites go. But in the households that listened to God's command and took hold of his provision, no one died. The lamb was a substitute. The lamb bore the judgment of God rather than the firstborn. And when the Israelites celebrated the Passover in years to come, there was always a lamb. Each household would take a lamb, kill it, cook it and eat it to remember that great night when God passed over the Israelite houses and then brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples And he takes this meal and he radically reinterprets it as a way of explaining his own death. See, now it's not the lamb's body that is the focus. It's now Jesus' own physical body, symbolised in the bread. He says, take, this is my body. And it's not the lamb's blood spread on the doorframe now that saves you from God's just judgement. It's Jesus' blood, symbolised by the wine in the cup. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. So instead of the old substitutionary lamb, Jesus says, I'm the new Passover lamb. It's not the old redemption out of Egypt that's the focus anymore. That's been replaced, superseded by the new rescue that Jesus is achieving as the new Passover lamb. So by his death under God's judgment, he will secure the salvation of all those who take shelter under his blood. But there are other allusions too here, actually, in what Jesus says. His blood will be poured out for many, he says. Just like the suffering servant we saw this morning in Isaiah 53, bearing the punishment for their sins. And it's not the old blood of the covenant which Moses sprinkled around at Mount Sinai. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which means it's not that old covenant. We've now got a new covenant established in Jesus' blood. Point being is this, a lot of the shadows that we saw this morning, those shadows and promises, they are now all coming together as Jesus explains what his death will mean. You can see there on the screen, you've got the shadow of the high priest and his sacrifice, the shadow of the victorious Christ and his throne, the shadow of the prophetic servant and his suffering, and the promise of a new covenant. We were left this morning saying, how are all those things going to come together? What's the reality to which all of those things point? 
You see, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying those shadows, those promises, they're pointing to me and my death. My cross is the reality to which those things are all pointing as shadows. It's not going to be an easy path for Jesus to tread. And so we come to part three, moments of decision. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy And they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. When it comes to the point of decision, Jesus does go alone to his death, doesn't he? As he predicted from the scriptures, they all desert him and run away. Even this nameless young man who would rather flee the scene naked than be caught there with Jesus. 
Some speculate, actually, that that might be Mark himself, inserting him and his experience of the moment into the text. Though there's a curious echo there even of Amos chapter 2, verse 16, where we're told, even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. They all flee, and Jesus goes forward to his death alone. Despite his knowledge that they would all desert him, Jesus did try to encourage them to give him some moral and spiritual support when they were in Gethsemane with him. Sit here, he said, stay here, stay awake, pray. And he shared with his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, just how distressed and anxious he was knowing what was coming. I am deeply grieved even to death. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't even stay awake. And so Jesus prays alone. And Jesus' prayer here really is the most amazing thing. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Now the cup is a frequent Old Testament reference to the cup of God's wrath. Uh, For example, Isaiah 51, verse 7, refers to uh, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. In fact, that may well be the passage Jesus is thinking of since that section ends with the Lord taking away the cup so that the afflicted one doesn't need to drink it again. So Jesus asked for the cup of wrath to be taken away from him. But he then continues... Yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus' prayer is very revealing. It reveals his obedience to his Father. It reveals his submission to his Father. But it also reveals the terrifying reality of facing God's wrath. Even Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, take this from me. He doesn't want to go through with it. He doesn't want to face God's wrath against sin. Can you imagine what it's like knowing that you have to face the full extent of God's wrath against sin? It's actually worth pondering. Because in John's Gospel, we read that whoever rejects Jesus the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. That is, unless we all come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we'll each face God's wrath against our sin. That prospect should terrify us because it terrified Jesus when he knew that was what he was going to have to face. No wonder he was distressed. Jesus' full humanity was never more on display than right there in that moment and yet he chooses to be obedient to his Father. Three times Jesus goes back and prays the same thing. And by the time he comes back from the third time, it seems Jesus' resolve has been strengthened by his Father and the Spirit. Because he says, enough! The hour has arrived, and he then leads them out to meet the rabble who've come to arrest him. He goes forward to drink the cup. 
But then despite all their protestations that, you know, if necessary, we will die with you, Jesus, they all run away. And so we come to part four, the trial. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed, and the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Then, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner to them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Jesus undergoes two trials, one before the Jewish religious leadership and one before the governing Roman authority in the region, Pontius Pilate. Two very different groups, but remarkably similar features in both encounters. First, it's plain in both trials that Jesus is actually innocent. According to Jewish law, people had to be convicted on the basis of two or three witnesses, but the Jewish authorities couldn't get any consistent testimony even among those who were fabricating evidence against him. And it's clear that Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence. We're told that Pilate could see through the Jewish authorities' schemes. He knew that they were jealous of Jesus' popularity and they were constructing charges to have him executed. And when the crowd cry out terribly for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate has to ask, why? What evil has he done? The only reason Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified in the end is to pacify the crowd. So it's clear that Jesus is innocent of all the charges. What's also a bit surprising in both trials is Jesus' silence. You'd think surely when people bring all a whole bunch of false charges against you, you would take the opportunity to speak up and defend yourself. But Jesus refuses to answer the charges that are brought against him in both trials. There's a reflection there of the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, we're told that the servant was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I take it that Jesus' silence reflects his trust in his Father's will. Your will be done. The third common point in the two trials is the question over Jesus' identity. Is he the Christ, the Messiah, the King or not? That's the key question in both trials. When he's before the Jewish authorities, the whole trial turns on when the high priest asks him the question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers, I am, and you'll see me seated at the right hand of the power. 
That's a reference to Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's more, Jesus says, you'll see me coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a quote from Daniel 7, verse 13, where the Son of Man comes with the clouds to God and receives authority and a place on his throne. So their question was, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? By quoting Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, Jesus could not really have said yes in any stronger terms. But that's a complete outrage for the Jewish leaders, that this guy might be the Messiah. To make himself equal with God like that, that's blasphemy. And Leviticus 24 verse 16 clearly says, anyone who blasphemes must be put to death. So that's good enough for them. In the Roman trial, Pilate also focuses on Jesus' identity. The question for him is whether or not Jesus really was claiming to be king of the Jews because if he was claiming to be king of Jews, that would be a threat to the authority and power of Rome and of Caesar in particular. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This time Jesus doesn't give him an answer, but instead Jesus puts the ball back in Pilate's court. You say so. That is, you decide whether I am or not. You're running this trial. What do you think? But in the end, Pilate decides it's not so, which is why he says to the crowd, what do you wish, to me, what do you wish me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? So in the end, no one really treats Jesus as the king he is. Peter denies him. The crowd bay for his blood. The Jewish leaders condemn him. And Pilate hands him over to be crucified. Part five, the crucifixion. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was God's son. This is the climax of Mark's gospel. You remember Mark opened his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here in this moment, as Jesus dies... Mark's gospel account reaches its climax in the testimony of this Gentile centurion. Truly, this man was God's son. And he spoke truly. Though the soldiers mocked him, dressed him in a purple cloak, crowned him with thorns, pretended to salute him as the king of the Jews, and the inscription above him no doubt was intended to be ironic, the king of the Jews... And though everyone there derided, mocked and taunted him for claiming to be the Christ, that's who Jesus really was, the King. And we see his identity as King confirmed by the repeated fulfilment of Scripture in the details surrounding his death, particularly from Psalm 22. So I'll give you a few examples of the little bit we just read. When the soldiers cast lots to divide up Jesus' clothes, that's an echo of Psalm 22, verse 18, where the psalmist, who was terribly afflicted by his enemies, says, they divide my garments amongst them and cast lots for my clothing. When the passers-by and the chief priests are mocking Jesus, it sounds just like Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, where the psalmist says, I am scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Which sounds a lot like what those who were mocking Jesus were saying. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Now, the terrible irony in all that, of course, is that 
Jesus is the Passover lamb. The only way he can save others was not by saving himself. That's what the Christ had to do. Pour out his blood for many. And then thirdly, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 directly in that terrible final moment when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What can we make of that terrible cry? I mean, has Jesus been abandoned by his heavenly Father at that point? Is that even possible if God is Father, Son and Spirit, three persons in one being? Is this Jesus' sudden realisation that actually he's been wrong all along and God won't be coming to save him? Well, it actually helps to read the whole of Psalm 22 through. And I'd encourage you to do that. Because Psalm 22 is the prayer of a person who is terribly afflicted by his enemies, who needs saving desperately, but who is also confident that God will eventually step in and deliver him because God is always faithful. So it's an entirely appropriate psalm for Jesus at this most terrible moment because he knew he would be rejected and killed, but he also knew and has told his disciples that he'll be raised on the third day. So even though his suffering is terrifying and terrible and excruciating, drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin, he knows too that God will deliver him from death and will rescue him. This is a cry of real agony in the context of a sure hope of rescue. And so experiencing the fullness of God's wrath and condemnation for sin Jesus dies. And the massive curtain which separated the innermost sanctuary of the temple where God symbolically dwelt amongst his people, that massive curtain tears. Not from bottom to top as you would expect if one of us tried to tear it. It tears, you notice, from top to bottom. Why? Why? How? It's because God tears the curtain. Why does he do that? Well, because the whole temple system, the whole old covenant in which it featured, is now over. Jesus' blood of the new covenant has been shed. The old era has gone. The new day is dawning as Jesus died. Part 6, the tomb. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come and since it was the day of preparation that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, 
went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where the body was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's such a strange ending. I don't mean Jesus' resurrection. We should have expected that because Jesus had told his disciples repeatedly that he would be raised after death on the third day. I mean the reaction of the women at the tomb. They're told, look, he's not here. He's been raised like he told you, so go and tell the others. But instead, they run away. They flee in terror and amazement and they say nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It should have been a great moment of celebration. Jesus was right all along. He died and is now raised. He is the promised Christ, the Son of God, because the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus' identity. There can be no more doubt now. Jesus is the risen Christ, the King, having died as the Passover lamb for our sins. But but that's not what the women do. They flee in terror and amazement and they say nothing to anyone out of fear. I mean, when I read through it, it makes me want to yell at them. No, don't do that! Look at how great this is. Jesus died and now he's alive. Don't say nothing. And yet, maybe... Maybe the reason that we've been told it is so that we might remember that there's maybe an echo there in their reaction, an echo of something we see even in our own hearts and lives sometimes. Ever been overwhelmed by fear and terror when you've been entrusted with the great news about Jesus and given an opportunity to share it? ever been not 
overflowing with the good news but more constrained by fear. Maybe actually it's an experience we're all a bit familiar with. Maybe it gives us pause actually to think about how have we stewarded this message about Jesus the King. I'm going to give you a few moments just to write down things that you've reflected upon tonight, things you've learnt, things that have stood out for you and then maybe some response and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our Passover lamb, to be our sacrifice, to be the servant who suffers in our place. We cannot thank you enough for your mercy and your grace and praise you for the obedience of Jesus for our sake. Lord, write these truths deep into our hearts and minds so that we might live each day in the glorious light of what you have done for us all in the cross of your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.